0: The key word for this chapter of the Chronicles is just, wow. Because today's author, Glenn Hayden, is an absolute professional and veteran artist. Since graduating from the acting course at WAPA in 1986, Glenn Hayden has been working in the national and international arts industry as a director, actor, mentor, teacher, festivals director, facilitator, producer, and soft skills trainer. He was Associate Director of Melbourne Workers Theatre in Victoria and Deck Chair Theatre Company in WA and for 10 years he was the Artistic Director and then later CEO of Urban Myth Theatre Company in Adelaide. He is the co-founder of Perth's Blue Room Theatre. Glenn has also travelled around the world facilitating and teaching theatre workshops in countries such as Indonesia and India. Glenn has consistently worked in the fields of the non-for-profit and corporate sectors and working with people from communities such as disabilities, aged care, reform, regional, disadvantaged and disenfranchised youth. Glenn makes a return to India annually as the creative director of the Peas and Carrots Theatre Company, which is based in Mumbai and Goa, where he also facilitates theatre workshops and delivering corporate training programs. He is also regular guest faculty, faculty member of the Goa Institute of Management and guest artist of the Thespo Theatre
1: Festival. Glenn, welcome. Hi, thank you very much, Ryan. What a nice introduction. Well, when I was writing this up,
0: because I have to confess, like, I was a copy and paste from your, <laughs> um, your brand new website. Yeah, cool. <laughs> so, well, that's good. It means yeah, it works. Yeah. It so, means yeah. it works. I like so, that so yeah that's worked and like I know there's stuff I didn't mention like when we met uh, previously you were uh,
1: an agent for comedians in Perth yes which was just for a couple of years yeah Um, uh, that was born from um, the Blue Room in fact Mm. So myself, I was, I was working as the arts administrator of the mm. Blue Room and the WA Actors Centre, as it was called back then. Oh. Uh, Linda Martin um, was also doing some part-time work with us and we started the comedy nights at the Blue Room. That was one of the ways we kept the Blue Room financial. Mm. We opened it up to comedy and to thrash bands, uh, which was fantastic. Uh, and the comedy just took off. So it was a real revival time in the in the sort of mid-late 80s in Perth of comedy. And we recognised and were told by a lot of comedians and cabaret acts that uh, they weren't getting paid very well uh, through the venues around Perth and and Western Australia. So Linda and I sort of put our heads together and said, okay, well, let's start an agency and Mm. we'll manage all the comedians and comedy acts and um, cabaret acts and ensure that they get an equity minimum. We were working very, very closely with um, WA Actors Equity at the time, now the MEAA. Mm. Um, so they came on board with that as well and helped us, helped us structure a good pricing range for all of the, um, uh, the comedians and the cabaret acts. And we started selling them around Western Australia and we did really well. So for a while I was the, the suited agent with the glass of scotch in the hand hanging out by the bar and saying, be funny, be funny. <laughs> You know, and pushing comedians on. And then we started touring people. We toured Elliot Goblet, um, Ostentatious, a few oh, others. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. He, oh, Sandy Goodman was an extraordinary tour. Very um, fantastic comedian as Sandy Goodman. Wonderful comedian. His ostentatious um, act got us into trouble a few times <laughs> around town. Uh, but yeah, so it was a really wild time. I mean, at that stage, I was doing the agency, we were also producing theatre, and I was acting still. I hadn't started directing yet, and we were running the Blue Room, so it was a really, really busy time. And it was a busy time in Perth as well. I think there were six or seven professional theatre companies running full time at that stage. So everybody was working. It was an incredible buzz around Perth. So it's it's sad to see that um demise so much. Well, that as
0: oh God, I'm, uh, I've
2: I've, so
1: got I've got a jumped history. your question. No, 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 so no. no you're right. <laughs> no, you just got one. You you really got one. Um.
0: I, I, like I wrote this question down and take it what you would I was like imagine you're standing in the center of the Perth Cultural Hub you know in, yes. in, in Northbridge yeah. you know with the, the library that, yeah <laughs> <laughs> has Perth's artistry
1: arisen or stabilized since the 1980s really good question really good question Ryan I think um I th- I think several things have happened since the 80s which have changed the the, the platform and the environment of the arts. I think back in the 80s, doing a co-op or a non-for-profit was more about, um, let's do this play for free, quote-unquote, because we just have to do this play and nobody else will produce it. Whereas now it seems to be um, artists are doing co-ops because that's the job you can get. I think um, there's a lot more less risky work being done now mm. as a co-op. And, but there's more co-op, and especially with the fringe taking off yeah. so hugely. I, I mean, I have some problems with the co ops sort of world. I, I've done one in my whole career. And after the first one, I just thought, right, I'm not going to work that hard again for nothing. I'm just not going to do it. But now, I mean, unfortunately, and especially for emerging artists, it's the only way to get a gig. Yeah, And especially because there's not enough theatre companies here anymore. To, I mean, we had the Hole in the Wall, the Playhouse or the WA um, Theatre Company... Deck Chair, Winter Theatre, all these amazing... Swy Theatre Company, all Mm. these incredible theatre companies, and they were actually doing really risky work. I suppose the Playhouse and the WA Theatre Company were were the safe uh, commercial company Mm. who were doing a lot of British theatre, etc., etc. But all these other companies were doing really wonderful, risky work, international work, but those platforms don't exist anymore. And uh, so so the co-op world has taken off big time because that's the way to get a gig. that's the way to be seen. So I I mourn that. I I mourn that that time in Perth where there was so much work around. And I say to a lot of young emerging artists, you know, miss a fringe. You don't have to be in fringe just because fringe is on. You know, save up for two years because you're going to lose all your money. You know, the minute you go into a a co-op, I think, or especially a fringe co-op to to pay your rent... You failed because mm. it 's not going to happen you know, there's, I mean they, they, the fringes keep claiming how ticket prices are going through the roof each year, but there 's more shows yeah because it 's non curated so of course, in their final bottom line there 's a lot more tickets sold, but there 's a lot more shows, and all those shows are playing to really small houses or canceling performances. to go back to your original question, I think it hasn 't stabilized, I think it 's messy. Mm. I think there, there needs to be a broom brought in and, and yeah. sweep up the mess and then to to, to become a community again. I, I think that's one of the issues in, in contemporary Australian theatre industry is that we're all fighting for the same money as far as funding goes, um, which is diminishing every day. And so we're, we're not working together enough to, to, to create the community of, of the arts industry. It's very ageist. The young are hanging out with the young. The older established are hanging out with the older established. Mm. Or staying in their homes, <laughs> you know, and just not going out because they're petrified to get outside. So the, the community of theatre, I think, is, is suffering because we're not hanging out together mm. anymore. I mean, that's one of the reasons we started The Blue Room uh, was... I mean, literally it started, there were five of us in my lounge room, pissed as farts, arguing about what theatre should be done and, you know, how do we change this, how do we change that? And we said, why don't, why don't we open a bar and a theatre space? Where we can all be hanging out together, whinging, and solve each other's problems, and so the bar at the Blue Room was the first thing we had to get happening. We mm. had to be able to sell booze and invite the whole industry into the place. Um, the Blue Room is, has has uh, changed a lot since then, obviously, and it has to as well. It's it's a successful business, so it can't be as free and easy as it was back in the 80s, but what 's missing, I think, is that we all used to hang out there, young, old, everybody. Mm. you know people would finish their gig at the playhouse or the hole in the wall, and they'd come to the blue room, and so we had a lot of different ages, a lot of different levels of experience hanging out together and being a community so that 's disappeared as well, I think, and that 's not just the blue room, I think that 's an industry thing where we 're very separatist, I think, in a sense, so yeah, not leveled, I think it 's messy I think're we 're also scared that our industry is is suffering so much at the moment. It's never, in my my 30 years in the industry, it's never been as heightened as it is at the moment, this sense that, unfortunately, arts is just not in the psyche of the Australian people. Mm. And that's a massive, massive problem for us, is that we we don't live in a country where people budget monthly to to be going to an arts experience. It's it's a special occasion. So it's elite. You know, theatre is still seen as an elite... Thing. I think people are producing theatre either to get bums on seats, so they do quite safe yeah. um, theatre, or they're trying to be um, issue-based and creating the work far too fast, I think, and so they're not creating fabulous plays that could be redone in 50 years' time, 60 years' time, 70 years' time. They're plays that can only exist now because they're about the issue of now mm. and they're not um, crafted well enough to survive. They don't become literature. They just become a play of the moment and they disappear. So in a way, it becomes in danger of outdating. Yes, yes, outdated very, very quickly. Sometimes within a year, if the politics change yeah. enough, you know, the, the play is gone. And I'm, I'm not dissing issue-based theatre. I love issue-based theatre. Mm. I think it's a really powerful tool. But when it starts to become issue-based theatre, starts to become the... the um, the creation of theatre as the art, mm-hmm. then I think it's really dangerous. I mean, I've, I've spoken to some writers and they said, oh, yeah, I wrote this play in, in three weeks. I was like, really? You know, how? I'm sorry, are you a genius? Yeah. You know? <laughs> and they're not. They're not genius. They're, they're emerging artists. They're, they're really young. Some of them are actors or directors who decided to write a play. And they mount these plays as a co-op and they're crap. They're absolute crap. I mean, I applaud... The, the notion of learning your craft on the floor yeah. and, and creating anything just make art I mean that's the only way to learn but it also has to include the involvement of mentors who are much more experienced it has to be part of the arts community so we're, we're in discussion and we're we're in good healthy critical debate um, as opposed to defensive ways of you know, we, we, when we criticise um, art and people take it so personally, and it's like, well, no, it, it's art. It's meant to be criticised. Yeah. But it has to be healthy, critical debate. I'm allowed to not like the colour of your shirt. You know, it doesn't mean I think Ryan's a dickhead. <laughs> <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> you know, but um, I, I think often um, because we are so, so defensive and so hungry and um, unfortunately so um, much living in a famine at the moment, so we are very, very defensive and it's hard to have a healthy, critical debate platform
0: but the one thing that really got me reading your biography like and when we were talking last time we met yeah the one thing i'm really interested in about and you work in india mm. is about the corporate world mm-hmm. teaching businessmen and women you know acting skills and i, I was just curious are you a, i don't know there's like a bit of a skepticism of me is like <laughs> i had this wild image of you like training these um killing machines or robots <laughs> who just perfectly meld into the population and then yeah. they get through. Are you frightened teaching them like how to
1: be really good? and Not not really. I mean, I suppose what I specifically teach... Um, I mean, one of the first things I say to groups of, of corporates is that um, I do not want them to be actors. Yeah, I don't expect them to be actors. That's, that's my job and my peers' jobs, and that's what we train to do. They train to be business people who, who are running healthy meaningful and hopefully very humane businesses. Uh, so what I teach is, is techniques of actors and artists that they can adapt into their corporate and business life, i.e. Um, critical debate or mm. uh, creative thinking, um, certainly even some technical stuff of voice production, uh, body language, um, how to tell a good story. Uh, so we work on you know um, their, their um, presentation scripts and, and structure it like a, a monologue. Uh, and we talk a lot about the, that kind of technique of, of that the story has to be engaging. So it's not, not actually about getting in there and, and teaching them how to be liars, you know, which is the, the truth of acting. Yeah. Uh, it's about using our techniques of what we know so well to to be happier, I think, in, the, mm. in their work. Ultimately, I think that's the core of how, how do you remain happy in your work? And mm. that's a very technical thing that, that we know of how to... How to protect yourself from playing Macbeth? You know, eight shows a week <laughs> for six months. Yeah. You know, things like that. I mean, that, that sounds quite obscure, but it's quite true. You know, we need to we need to protect ourselves from our craft. Um, otherwise, we, we become um, well, we go mad. We can't become uh, the character. And so, when you have a discussion with a corporate about that, it's well, you know, you're you're not just an accountant. You're you're a human being with a family, maybe, or you know, with a with a private life, and you need to. Work to live, not live to work.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, and theatre and art techniques are very good at that. We're we we're, we're very um, adaptable, very sustainable. We're so resilient. Mm. Artists are the most resilient people I've ever met in my life. The shit that we put up with, you know, throughout a career of, of you know just getting a gig and then how to cope with disappointment, um, but still continue on. So those kind of things you talk to a corporate about, it, it's like, wow, oh, okay, so I, I can actually utilize that skill that, you know, that, that an actor uses to, to survive my day. And it's like, yeah, I mean, breathing technique, yeah. just teaching them how to breathe properly and deeply. And it does change their, their, their attitude. And I, I hope they become better people within their industries, not necessarily just yeah. better at their job. So secretly, that's my, my mission, working with corporates, is to make them better people. I mean, that sounds very wanky. But it's, it's about finding their centre, I mm. suppose, which, again, we know very, very well. I mean, the other thing that I think artists are, which we have over a lot of the population, is that we are incredibly empathetic. You know, to, to be a, a, a great artist, you have to have such empathy for the world. Otherwise, we can't... I mean, if I'm playing, you know, a, a child murderer, you know, I need to be able to empathise with that character to be able to achieve that character. I can't just play the baddie. Mm. And so even that discussion with the corporate is is quite fascinating to watch them, especially when the penny drops of oh, that thing of, okay, I need to have empathy for the person that I'm selling my vacuum cleaner to or, or trying to you know, sign some huge financial deal with. You know, and, and I think it makes better business and better people. Mm. Yeah. yeah. It's fascinating. I mean, it's, yeah, I, it's, it's more of a... I suppose it's more of a fascination for me rather than a moneymaker for... For me, I tend to be really, really choosy of who I work with um, in the corporate sector. I don't just um, go out there and sell myself into the corporate sector. I'm, I'm quite, um, yeah, I'm quite fussy, and I, I do a lot of, I do a lot of recce work with an organisation before I actually commit to working with them. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah. So it's not, I, I, I haven't become rich from corporate work. Oh, that's alright. Is that okay? Yeah. It's my neighbour. Yeah, so we should say, we
0: are recording in Glenn's backyard, wonderful, wonderful garden, and you hear the the
1: occasional gurgle from the pool next door, and we're on a road, but... And the neighbour's building something. It's very old, so it doesn't last very long, I don't think. (laughs) (laughs) But but that is uh, life. Yeah. Well, in actual Mm -hmm. fact, funny enough, the garden's my saviour at the moment. Um, it's, It's the first time I've haven't been as busy as I usually am in life and so um, the garden's been my creative outlet and that's really important to me if I'm not, they, m- m- my yeah. therapist would, would um, agree with me <laughs> that it's not necessarily healthy to, to not be happy out of work but I'm not, I'm, when I'm not creating on the floor or working with young artists, especially young and emerging artists, um, I start going stir crazy. Mm. It's, it's like my lifeblood has taken away. And so the garden, yeah, has been um, fantastic. So I go for a walk every night with my pair of scissors and steal other people's plants, <laughs> clippings, <laughs> which my grandmother taught me <laughs> when I was Brilliant. a child. Yeah, every night after dinner, she'd go for a walk with her scissors and just snip little bits. So you're not ripping up people's plants, yeah. you're just snipping and her whole garden was, was clippings from other people's gardens. That's fascinating. Yeah, it's fantastic.
0: Because you know what I did, talking about gardening, so Anzac Day, Yeah. it was one o'clock and I was at home and I was, I, I was starting to go, mad. I, I wasn't doing anything, I didn't have mm. engagements and mm. I wasn't doing anything with the family. And we had this like sort of sand pit. It used to be, it used to be an actually veggie, veggie patch with okay. all this brickwork, but yep. we got rid of it and we had this summer a temporary pool in it. And we just got rid of the pool, uh, so you just got this sand, this big area of sand, and I made a garden bed. Yeah, cool. And then it's one of the greatest things, and I'm growing onions and cabbage and carrots and what, yeah. you know, basic, very basic food stuffs that you use, you know, in your cooking. Yeah, yeah.
1: But the one of the greatest feelings. It's pretty satisfying. I think also there's something really wonderful, I love it, of, of um, at the end, how dirty my hands are. Mm. And like, there's all this grit and dirt and soil under your fingernails, and... You know, you, you've sweat and mm. yeah, I mean, it's a bit blokey, I suppose, but you know, it's, it's, it is nice to, to get those muscles flexed, you know, and just dig a hole, <laughs> 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 dig a trench, you know, <laughs> but then plant a flower. You know. I, mean, I don't grow flowers very much. I, I really like growing things I can hack back once mm. a year. I like the idea of just like hacking it back and then, growing, then it grows again, yeah, gets stronger, hopefully.
0: yeah, 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 which is cool yeah because yeah. and I, I think, yeah, I want to keep making that sort of tradition of, because especially like Anzac Day and I and I'm like thinking like in, on an artistic point of view, like I like the symbol of like because you know Anzac Day, you're really celebrating obviously life, but you're also representing um, um, celebrating death in a, in a sense. Yeah, yeah and it's yeah, just yeah. like a nice mark to grow something, yeah 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 you know, and hope, and
1: it's pretty special. And also the thing about this garden is um I planted all these big trees 20 years ago. 25 years ago so yeah. my friends own um, this townhouse mm. and I lived here 25 years ago um, and planted all these trees so oh, it's wow. pretty nice coming back and seeing them 25 years later yeah it's very cool Marvelous. so it's I've had a long relationship with these with these girls yeah so it's nice to come back to something I planted a long time ago because this is the first I haven't lived in Perth for about 20 years. So hmm. this is the first time I've, I've lived full time. I've been back for gigs, but this is the first time I've been living here for about 20 years. So, it's pretty weird. Yeah. Pretty weird. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I was thinking about, I'll, no, I'll leave that to later. I just, I know this is sort of jumping into the deep end, but I thought I have to ask you this question and take it or leave it. Mm. But do you feel like, have you found, do you think there are certain qualities that make a good director
1: yes uh, I think um, again uh, empathy Mm. empathy is a really favourite word of mine Um, I I really love it I think if everyone could think that word at least once a day we'd have a better world (laughs) Um, so I I think uh, yeah I think a director has to have an enormous amount of empathy obviously for the play for all of its characters and for the actors going through the journey of discovering that character I think um, I feel very fortunate that I was a trained actor and I worked for 10 years as a, as a professional actor before moving into directing. I think it was a really good apprenticeship hmm. to have a very, very clear and very experienced idea of, of what an actor goes through to achieve their role. So I, I find that I can be very empathetic. And it's very true, all those clichés about a good director. I mean, they're the mother, the father, the uncle, the auntie, the brother, the sister, the best friend mm. and the enemy, you know. Um, you really do need to, to be all of those things. But that's the thing I, I love about it. Mm. Um, my, I still distinctly remember my first day of rehearsal as a director um, flying on my own, and I just felt creatively I'd come home because I knew it was all my fault. <laughs> <laughs> like the idea. I mean, if the play works, ultimately it's my fault. If the play doesn't work, yeah. it's my fault. And it's what I say to especially emerging actors, you know, to get them to be braver. This is my fault. This is my directorial decision, you know. So if this fucks up, then, then um, it's my fault. You can blame the director, yeah. you know. And of course, the actor has responsibility, and, and we collaborate and, and all that sort of thing. But um, I think my job as a director, and I think um, it's something I've certainly. Received some really nice feedback from from actors. is said I give them a lot of room to play and a lot of room to to um to bring their quality into the piece, but then in a very timely manner, rein them in. Yeah. And I think that's another quality of a good director is when to rein them in. Uh, I, I find myself repeating myself a lot um, with a lot of theatre that I see where I I think ah oh, it, it feels like the director hasn't told the actor to now bury the rehearsal and I'm seeing the rehearsal on stage, I'm seeing the work and I don't want to see that, I want to see the character I want to see the play, I want to see the story Yeah, so I think it's a real I think there's a real gift which I feel like I have which is where to timely bring the actor in and say okay now let's bury that rehearsal. Unfortunately again in Australia, we only have four or five weeks to rehearse plays you know, (laughs) where some other countries, you know, they have they can have up to three months, four months, five months, depending on what the piece is, you know. So, so we we work very hard and we work very very fast, but I think we still have to bury the rehearsal. We don't want to see that that work happening. I hate seeing an actor working hard. You know? mm. <laughs> it's 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 their the, their job is to to make it a look a lot more easy than what it is. Which is where I think um, you know training is very important for actors. Um, I often have this debate especially with pre-trained actors of, you know, well, I don't want to go to a, an institute to learn how to act. And it's like, well, okay. I, I think it's possible to, to become a working actor without training, but you have to work yeah. a lot harder to make sure you get those all those elements in place, like movement, voice, yeah. you know, even the spiritual side, making sure you're always in front of a camera with friends. or You know, it's quite expensive. I think it's much, much more expensive okay. to, to train as an actor outside of an institute than it is in, in an institute. And training is trendy
2: mm. now.
1: You know, uh, for working actors, it's, it's, it's uh, that degree has become as important as a lot of the other degrees around in our world. People want trained actors. And I think rightfully so. The, the three-year courses are extraordinary. Uh, I think anything under three years is um, a little bit spooky. I think mm. you need those three years. And I also think over three years is a bit spooky as well. Mm. I know that Flinders Uni, uh, their course is four years. And um, I just think, ah, oh, no fourth year get them out there in the world you know whopper i think is still um you know such an extraordinary training ground for actors um i think all training institutes are suffering you know financially again and Mm -hmm. and less staff more work being pumped out trying to do more shows to get more bums on seats etc which is not what a training institute is for um it's for the actor to to fail So I think they're doing an extraordinary job under an amazing amount of financial pressure at the moment. Yeah, And I think, you know, certainly Whopper and and Knight and BCA are still keeping their heads above water of making sure that the the student comes first. But I think every day is a risk for them to, you know, they could turn around and make a shitload of money, Mm. much more than what they're making. But as long as... As long as they never lose that notion of it, the student must come first. I think we swayed off the original question. But, um, no. Yeah. What was the original question? I can't remember <laughs> the original question. Oh, no, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, oh yeah. Um, uh, qualities of like a good director
0: because. Mm. But I think, but I think that's like empathy that is so. Like I'd be watching some sometimes like there's this guy on YouTube. There's um not Serbian, uh Slovenian uh, philosopher called Slavoj Zizek. Okay. And he's he's quite comical and he's he's Anyway, I'm trying to do impression him. Um, but anyway, he's an re- interesting a philosopher. Mm. And I've been watching all these philosopher videos. And I think it was him or someone else. You know, these quick five minute YouTube cuts. Yeah. And they, someone said, empathy is nearly impossible to achieve. But I think empathy, it's good to sort of think and have that as
1: like the impossible goal. Yeah. yeah. I think it's a good target, a good aim. Yeah. I think that's called being a human being as yeah. well. I think, you know, as, as animals, I think we, we have instincts to do a lot of very, very wrong things and very unpolitically correct things. <laughs> but because we have, you know, a brain and thumbs, I think, you know, we can... We, our, our job as human beings is to always set those impossible goals. Uh, that's why I think, you know, if, if people could have the word empathy planted in their brain once a day, you know, because it, it, I, natu- I don't think it's necessarily a natural thing Empathy, but um, I think we must nurture empathy. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think your philosopher friend is very correct. You know, that it's, it's not, it's, it is almost an unachievable goal as, mm. as, a, as a species, but we should strive for it. Mm. We should consider it. You know, and that's what go, good governments should always be doing. You know, it's going almost against human nature and making sure everyone's okay, not just survival of the fittest. It's, mm. it's, you know, keep us out of the cave. Because I think we could go back to the cave very easily. As, as a species. Oh, yeah. yeah. we could... If we dropped the ball and stopped thinking about others, I think we would end up back in the cave very, very quickly. And I think we're sort of at the mouth of the cave at the moment. Mm. You know, the, the weaker... The weak... or well, not no, the weak's the wrong word, but, you know... The perceived weak are uh, in danger, I think, at the moment. Um, and I think there's not a lot of forward planning happening. Uh, I think it's all about, you know, a uh, uh, profit now, consequence later... And I think that does affect the arts hugely. Just to, to bring it back to this discussion, you know, I mean, if, especially from a government perspective, if we're not being supported for our future and to be able to plan, you know, um, the future as an arts body um, or an arts industry, then it's very, very dangerous. We must be given time to be able to sit in a garden and think. Yeah. You know, that's that's where great art comes from. You know, I can remember my mother. <laughs> saying to me, "What do you mean you're just sitting? You know, thinking. Go out and do something." So I'm, I'm actually working really hard. I'm, I'm letting I'm letting the play or you know the the, the idea gestate and, and travel down the rabbit warren that it needs mm-hmm. to travel down to come to the, the perfect moment. You know, and I, I think we're we're forced to work so fast and with so little resource that we don't have time just to sit and stare into space and and let the the art formulate it's all becoming a little bit too rushed. I, I mean, whenever I'm directing a play, I mean, uh, obviously the, the earlier you know that you're going to be directing a piece, the better because you have time to, to just... Re- I mean, I love the research side of it. Mm-hmm. I, I, I always whip myself and think I've never done enough research. I just haven't worked hard enough, you know, on the research, but I love the research part of it. I love the psychology side of it and the philosophy side of it. Yeah. I love... You know, and I'm, I'm no specialist I'm in, in either of those, those um, disciplines, but I love indulging reading on subjects around philosophy and psychology, and, and even counselling and those kind of art forms when tackling a play. You know. um, and you need time for that. You need time to gestate all that, because a lot of it's out of our natural reach. You know. mm. I mean, when you're doing these incredible plays, you know, i.e., like a Macbeth. You with the, the whole concept of, um, of murder and, and achievement in, in, in bad ways, you know, you need time to think about that because we're basically good people who haven't got murder, you know, on our mind. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, time, time is is so needed for the artist, and that's again what makes a good director. I think the ones that make sure they have time just to just to ponder. Uh, to ponder things you know i mean i I mean i've been an artistic director of a company and it's it's so hard to make that time when you're directing when you're heading a company where you you, i mean thank god i had staff that were very empathetic to my my needs as a director where i could just turn off from the office every now and then but when you have such a small staff which most australian companies have especially the the middle companies it's really hard to, to go okay this four weeks i'm just a director. Mm. or the five weeks leading up to the play, I'm just a director so I can gestate the idea because you've you've got to run a company. It's really hard work, really, really hard work. Not necessarily an enviable position. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) What makes working in India special? Look, it took me... I I still really haven't... Well, it's a a really big question for me. Um, uh, India's... Much more than just the work for me, I, I absolutely adore India, and i can't really answer why I love India full stop there's just something about it that resonates with me and the minute i I got through the doors of the airport in Mumbai, um, I knew that I had found a home for my for my heart from a professional perspective i, I the the challenge in India is um, oh gosh it's huge uh, there's there's still only what sixty seven or something years into independence you know from the Brits so there's yeah. still that hangover I mean, there's still people alive who, who lived under the regime of the Brits so there's that really incredible identity crisis if you like going on in India which is really wonderful to watch India reclaiming itself in that sense so from a creative perspective yeah there's it's an, it's interesting watching India work out what kind of contemporary theatre it wants to make there's a lot of a lot of theatre is made in India um, very some, some very similar issues um, in, in India as we do in the industry here where there's just not a lot of money. I mean, they have less money for, for arts. I mean, there's, there's no government support for arts. There's no government funding to go for. So they're, they're all doing it as, as cooperatives. <laughs> so they have to make popular theatre to mm. get bums on the seats. And it's really, really hard because in India they don't have seasons of three or four weeks. They have, say, one or two shows. Um, then in five months' time, there might be another show that they got into a venue because venues are so expensive. Yeah. So it's a really, really... It's a much harder um, arena to, to work in, really, when, when you think of how we dedicate ourselves to one piece, you know, for, for a couple of months um, on stage. And that they have it scattered, you know, across... I mean, there's one play um, that I know that's been going for three years, but they probably haven't filled four weeks... Of a season yet, you know, because it shows that are sold here and there, so yeah, it's very difficult. So that kind of really fascinates me as, as far as how to operate within that kind of an environment. I also um, am sort of trying to, to navigate the introduction of seasons, yeah, um, where they can have three to four weeks um, to get to know a play on stage, but it's very expensive, um, venues are incredibly expensive, especially in, in Mumbai. The other thing I, I adore about working and creating in India is that their, their artists are braver much quicker. They can be in rehearsal on day one and you will ask them to, to attempt a moment and they will just jump into it and hold it bolus. And it's like mm. they just ripped their soul open and brought it on stage. You go, oh my God, that's incredible. Whereas in Australia, we talk a lot. And you know, we analyse a lot, you know, why, why, why? Which are all fantastic questions, but we're, we're slower to, to get onto the floor in a, in a really raw way. Now, that has its own problems in itself. You know, it's like, well, hang on, guys, you've got to stick to, stick to the script. You can't just rewrite. And then why can't we just change these words? You go, no, 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 no it's honour the writer. Their creativity through bravery is extraordinary, and, and one of the things I'm, I'm loving and I've sort of committed to over the last five years is bringing the idea of technique Mm. together with with their absolute bravery and passion without squashing the bravery and passion but introducing this idea of technique. And people are loving it, um, the ones that I've I've worked with. Now, you've also got the the issues there where a lot of middle-class young people are training offshore or going to a a one-year or a six-month course offshore, Mm. um, but then they come back to India, which is fantastic. They want to be in India. But they think they're absolute specialists because they've done six months of MISNA. Somewhere, or, yeah. or three months of Lecoq, or so there, there's a bit of charlatanism going on, <laughs> so it's it's all a bit messy. It, it's messy in a different way, it needs a different broom in India, yeah. and I just adore it. I, I, I there's a, a fantastic word in Hindi, jugad, which basically means making something quite wonderful out of a complete and utter mess. Um, and oh. The idea of jugad really excites me, and I, I think. I, I suppose I have actually introduced it into my my methods as a director, where at the beginning we are just in... Well, we want to achieve jugad you know, through allowing the mess and then allowing the beauty to emerge from, from that, that mess. And, again, that's the skill of the director, I think, is to guide the mess, to allow the mess to happen so then you can rein it in to, to find the beauty. And Indians are, are very understanding of that um, when you have those discussions. I think because they've come from a very, very spiritual background um, and it's so entrenched in in their day-to-day life. So there's a a beauty about that as well. I'm certainly not a fan of fundamentalism, but um, just because the environment they live in is is highly spiritual and it's not a Christian-based religion. I mean, there's hundreds and hundreds of gods, so it's kind of a bit looser. Hmm. You know, there, there's something a bit more beautiful and romantic about it, especially as a Westerner. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm really aware of sometimes being the cliché Westerner, going, oh, wow, this is amazing, so <laughs> I'll clean, get over it. You know? <laughs> so it's it's interesting. That's the other thing I, I'm really enjoying as a creator and as a person. I, I love being the minority there. Mm. Um, it's just fascinating, and I, I never, I don't like, tourist area so i I never live or or hang out in the touristy area so i'm always in one of the suburbs where i'm the only white dude um and in a way you actually get to disappear um i mean at first all the locals are going oh my god there's a six foot two white dude living in our area but after two weeks we you know the the, the vegetable waller knows that i'm going to go there every day and the 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 barber knows i'm going to go there every few days and you become a local and you just disappear into it And it's fantastic. I mean, there's 24... Officially, there's 24 million people in Mumbai. Wow. You know, it's almost as big as our whole country. Yeah. You know, and disappearing amongst 24 million people is pretty cool. I really like it. I I think partly because of some um, issues um, about belonging that I have... um, which is part of the joy of disappearing into that environment, but also there's a huge amount of positivity about mm. it as well and, and just being part of that community. And, and I find that um, Indians just really care about each other. They really, really care about each other. Um, don't get me wrong, There's a l- I mean, they're human beings. There's a lot of shit going down as well. Yeah. And, and uh, as a country, there's a lot of shit going down. I mean, you know, so, some of the English laws that have been retained are absolutely ludicrous, um, uh, 377... Um, section 377, which is the, the anti-gay sex mm. bill which is British, absolutely British rule, and that's still in place in India which is bizarre, it's just incredible, especially because they're a country that are reclaiming their identity so that that's really difficult, I've, I've done a lot of work with the LGBTQI community in India and it's really fascinating working with people who, who um, are gay or lesbian or all the other um, communities within that where they're not allowed to be who they are. Mm. It's illegal. And that's really fascinating to be part of. And I've always... I mean, I've been out as a gay man since I was 14. Mm. So it's really bizarre going into a a whole country all of a sudden where I'm illegal, I'm a criminal. But it's interesting because I'm seeing things happening in India now that I saw happening as a teenager in Australia when we started claiming rights. Um, So I I think they're, they're well on the way. It'll happen. It's pretty bizarre being part of it. You know, attached to the whole arranged marriage thing, which is still very, very prevalent, so there's a lot of gay men who are married. Yeah. And my discussion, the ones I've met, you know, who claim they're bisexual, you know, is, uh, how's your wife? Is she okay? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, and I've literally met a man who said, um, yeah, 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 she's fine. I got her pregnant. So I did my duty. So she's had her children. And I oh. said, wow, man, that's, that's a really arsehole. Very asshole. Victorian. Yeah. But yeah, the, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. So there's some real asshole attitude born from um, really awful situations, of people wanting to claim their identity and be who they are. And yeah, because it's—I mean—it's a patriarchal society as mm. well, which I've—I've I've found really fascinating, and I've had many discussions um, with a few friends about this. Of sometimes I fear that my joy of India as a man is that I'm living in a patriarchal society there, mm. so my gender is boss. <laughs> and, and I have to make sure... I mean, I, I don't think that is the reason, but it's certainly an interesting... Yeah. It was certainly an interesting question for myself of why do I feel so comfortable in India. I thought, wow, is it because I'm, I'm basically sexist? Yeah. <laughs> Which I don't think I am. But it was a good question to ask, yeah, myself. Really wow. fascinating. Because the, the, the relationship between men is, is very, very different in India than I experience here where... And I'm not talking about um, gay men at all. Hmm. I mean, but I, I could meet someone and shake their hand... No. And they're very gentle handshakers, but in half an hour later, you're still holding that person's hand while talking. And it's because it just there's a, there's a much more comfortable attitude towards bodies, and, which is really weird considering section 377 is still in place. Yeah. But like I said, it's, it's not actually attached to a sexuality or, or even a sensuality. Well, no, it is very sensual. But it's not about sex. It's just about people connecting. I often get tapped on the chest after a discussion and when it first happened to me, I said, oh, what's that about? And they said, oh, we had a heart talk. We weren't talking from the head; we were talking from the heart. It's beautiful. Yeah. So stuff like that, and again, I know it's because I'm a Westerner, you know, and that I go, oh wow, this is fantastic, and like, oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me. But um, yeah, I'm also very good at not going in and, and into India thinking I'm going to, my soul is going to be saved through Indian spirituality. I'm, I'm too cynical for that, and I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm too much of an atheist for that as well, you know. And I don't do yoga. <laughs> oh, yeah. you know so many Are people they... say oh so you've been five times to India, you know, so <laughs> do you go to a retreat and I say I've never been to a retreat in my life and I'm not going to start now because <laughs> I light up another cigarette and pour myself a glass of wine you know? oh, yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's not about I, and that's what I feel for myself I'm, I'm only speaking for myself I feel like the spiritualism I find from India is very pure for me because it's not about buying into a spiritualized environment yeah. like a yoga retreat or whatever just what I feel uh, I'm very grateful for my nature that and a lot of my Indian friends comment on how I'll talk to anyone and I do I, I sit down and I, I end up talking to a, a guy who can't speak English and I can't speak Hindi and we will hang out for an hour and sign language and you know yeah. do body language discussion and I love that and I've got great friends now that I've known for four or five years that I've literally met on the street you know, and, If I I stood still for for two minutes in in India, somebody would come up to me and say, do you need direction? Are you okay? And they don't just point you in the right direction. They'll say, oh, well, I'll I'll walk you there. You know, and this isn't just the white dude thing. Mm. It's, it's, it's they, they help, well, you know, from my experience, they help each other. I mean, there is that awful, awful thing of, especially in the suburbs where I live, most restaurants I go to, I get too many waiters serving me and I, I get a lot of free food given to me because I'm the white dude and I've had some great discussions with um, Indian friends saying, oh, it's so fucking racist how they treat you. And it's like, yeah, it is. Yeah, it's terrible. <laughs> but then the same person will ring me up and say, Glenn, you know, we want to come out for dinner with you because we want a free dessert. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so we know that you know, some, something free is going to come to the big white dude's place. But again, you know, because I live in these areas and I'm not a tourist, I, I, the free shit stops because I'm going there once a week. You know, and I'm a local, and they get used to me, and I don't tip because I'm usually a poor artist over there as, mm. as much as I am here. Well, no, not as much here. But yeah, I, I'm not the rich white dude. Because unfortunately, the assumption is because I'm white, I'm rich. Mm. You know, and that's just that's, that's the world that we live in. So, I mean, in, India's um, to the original question of, of why do I like creating there, you know, I mean, India is exposed contradictions, and I really enjoy that. There, there's, I think there's lots and lots of similar problems in Australia of poverty, mental health, you know, all these incredible things that that, that go on, and, and, and you know, environmental issues. But in India, they're up front, they're just there in your face, and there's something about that I, I really enjoy, that I can see it all, and that's the good stuff as well. It's just in your face. We live behind fences, we build fences, mm. you know, we don't really want to get to know the neighbour. You know, we can't rent a house for more than a year, basically. So there's no, none of that sort of wonderful stability of communities that rent where you're there for 24 years. You know, we live in environments where... I think it's a year and a half is the, is the average length of time a renter stays in a home in Australia. And that's horrible. Yeah. Horrible. Cause it, so you can't put down those roots, you know. Whereas in an environment like India, you can, a family could have had a place for 90 years mm. and they're renting so community is, is wonderful there. So do you think that's
0: what, like, because I feel like, yeah, Australia can learn a lot from India. Yeah. The
1: sense of community,
0: about being far more open and closer with people.
1: Yeah, look, I, I think it's interesting. I've, I've thought about this one, and I'm not so sure if it's about us as individuals learning those kind of lessons and then incorporating it into our life. I think it's actually much more of a, I don't know, i um, not holistic I think it's from government as well of allowing us to be community uh, I think I'm, I'm quite cynical and uh, I think governments love keeping us poor and unemployed and stupid mm-hmm. because they'll keep the power I don't think they want us to be too happy <laughs> you know because <laughs> if we're happy then we'll we'll start voicing our opinion a little bit more I mean I think uh, Australians are really bad at revolution I think we are really really bad at uh, Revolting against something, and especially with the advent of Facebook, you know, we we, Facebook politics gives me the shits. Yeah, I've just the last two weeks closed down my personal Facebook because I'm just so sick of being preached things that I know I want to be preached. Yeah, um, for a start, which is manipulation from Facebook. I'm really, really sick of seeing people's food and selfies. (laughs) I just, I'm so against (laughs) selfies. I mean, narcissists, just. Yeah, I, I think, you know, we, we, just, we, we sit back a little bit too much and, and we do our revolution online, and it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Who was it? Um, Billy Bragg was on, on a show the other night saying, you know, no, 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 his Facebook, he, he, he makes sure he's friends with people that he knows he disagrees with. He That's knows right. that are right-wing. So he gets their opinion, and he, he, he can then build his argument in a much yeah. stronger way, and it's true. If we don't know the, what we're arguing against... We can't formulate a good oh. argument. I'm, I, I became a born again Christian when I was sixteen for about six months, oh, wow. <laughs> and I was so glad I did it because then I could truly say afterwards, "No, I'm an atheist, <laughs> absolutely, <laughs> and I know what I'm talking about." Now I've read that book, Back to Front, several times. I know exactly what I'm talking about, so I can truthfully have that debate now about whether there's a god or not. Oh. You know? So, um, yeah, and I think it's the same with you know the, the Facebook politics that we, we don't we're not we don't learn enough about the other side hmm. to be able to formulate a good enough argument it's all very wishy-washy the arguments I think
0: because thinking because I remember studying back I think it was second year we were, we were introduced to this book uh, Julia Cameron's The Artist's Way mm. you know yeah, that yeah, book yeah I do that's like the bible for yeah. all artists yeah and I love how she mentions about because it makes sense to me about a theatre god you don't have to necessarily yeah. believe in a deity yeah but it's good to sort of also coming back to directing like it's someone else's fault Mm, mm. And I think that's very healthy because I feel like we do have a tendency to be uh, self-deprecating. Yeah. Very, in a way, we have to be uh, obsessive with ourselves, with our practice. Mm, mm. But yeah, I I find find that believing in a theatre god does help.
1: Well, look, I I think one of the things that's been lost, uh, all those beautiful, beautiful uh, traditions and, and, you know, Mystical things about the theatre, and you know, you know what's happening is we're we're doing more theatre in sheds and, and yeah. non theatre theatre venues. But the idea of you know, don't whistle in the theatre, yes, you know, yeah. don't don't you know, don't eat junk food in the, in the dressing room. Oh
2: wow! Well, that know. was
1: in the days of uh, gaslight lights, and if you had loose paper, like so the fish and chips and things, yeah, you know, yeah. they paper, they could blow up into the light and burn. You burn your theatre down. You know, oh, wow. but the thing <laughs> I, I love that. about all those those superstitions is that they come from a very real place. Mm. So we've turned them into superstitions, which is fantastic. And, and I think it's one of the beautiful things of of the theatre is that we can have our own religion and that the theatre is the church. You know, and and, and we do have a theatre god. You know, and the theatre god is many, many, many things, and we're all part of that. I, I think it's beautiful. I, I get really sad when I talk to to young mm. professional actors and they don't know that you're not allowed to whistle in the theatre and they don't know things you know they don't yeah it's sad it's sad and it's it's something i mean our lives as as an artist are so scattered and nebulous and all over the place it's nice to actually have something to hold on to mm. like superstition and i suppose that's what religion is anyway you know yeah. <laughs> we're so fucking confused as human beings okay well let's create a god and some rules around it so then we've got at least something to hold on to something. so that part of you know <laughs> let's call it Christianity, Well, no, religion. You know, I quite like, I like the idea of faith. You know, I think faith is great, but I just don't like the idea of, you know, that there's this being telling us we're going to go to heaven or hell. Mm. You know, that's where it starts fucking up, you know, and going all wrong. And that the, the judgment that comes from that and, the, and the, the judgment on others from that. And we've, you know, we've bastardised it so much, you know, as the, as, the, as, the, as the fairy tale has been rewritten, you know, it, it just suits the government of the day or the king of the day or the queen mm. of the day. Yeah, so the theater god is great because it's been it's been around for a lot longer. I Absolutely, think. you know. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's sad that it gets lost. It's sad that it's, it's it's diminishing. The theater god is disappearing. There's actually a really nice prayer, hmm. prayer, um, a prayer to a theater god. Um, oh god, I can't remember it. It was a long, long time ago. Um, but it's very funny as well. Hmm. which is great. It's quite irreverent. Yeah. <laughs> but it's
0: I, I feel like you can learn about like. Because one of my favourite things, this is like, well, not my hobbies, but it's its quite good when you have like a, a hobby or an interest that's related to your work. Like, for example, yeah. I'm really, really interested in like these old theatrical actors like Sir John Gielgud, Sir Ralph Richardson, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. Dame Peggy Ashcroft. I really like those, you know, people who are knighted and Dame Woods and what have you. Mm-hmm. And it sort of ties in, like, I really love Sir Ralph Richardson because he, he's, and the reason why I love because he's so eccentric and he's yeah. such a free spirit and he's had this reputation of being a, Quite a nutter, and there was this. there's a time in his later career, like, and he was still performing, like late seventies. Yeah. And he he distrusted authors, like writers, yeah, yeah. who are alive.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: He just absolutely didn't like them and he wished he would. They were dead. Like he says, <laughs> I get no complaints from William Shakespeare, yeah, George exactly. Bernard Shaw. They're all dead.
2: Exactly. I get Because
1: no com- we all we all want to interpret freely. Mm. You know there there's. I mean, there's an absolute joy of having the writer in the room, but there's also, yeah, that absolute fear of, oh, God, you know, I'm not going to get it right for them. I mean, uh, you know, and that, uh, God, it has its issues, you know, when the writer stays too involved. because uh, that's the other thing with, with good writing. They write their plays to be interpreted. Mm. You know, when you've got a writer saying, oh, no, you can't do it that way, and it's like, well, go away. You know, I mean, I'm now the director interpreting your work. You know, if I get it wrong, that's my fault. so (laughs) i I totally agree with ralph you know that whole thing of yeah yeah, when they're dead we can do what we want (laughs) as long as you i mean lyle jones who was our head of acting at what you know he used to say i don't care if you if you do shakespeare on mars but as long as you do the play yeah you can set it wherever you want but do the play and i think with those great plays there's a there's a huge amount of of faith to, to to be um given these plays um I'm not against mucking around with with Shakespeare, but generally the the best Shakespeare's I've seen have been very true to the play and Mm. true to the author. Yeah, I think there's something beautiful about it. I I also think there's there's a wonderful um, discovery made and happy accidents are, are, are made when you have the battle of interpreting a script and when it's a really dense play... To instead say, oh, let's just change that word. It's easier. It's like no, 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 no. Let's take the harder road and try to find out what he actually meant or she actually meant. You know, we I directed um Victory, Howard Barker's um Victory at Wappa last year. It's such an incredible play, mm. really, really dense. It's really um, it's, it can be a very, very difficult play to navigate. And my God, it was it was so much fun working out what the hell he was was trying to say. Do and I think things like a, a barker, you know, is exactly what a student should be experiencing, yeah. let alone an audience, you know. I mean, the the audience experiencing those plays. I would love to have been an audience for that play and not know what was coming, you know, but I knew as the director. But my god, it's just, just wonderful, wonderful. So I, I think there's absolutely the joy is, is trying to work out what the writer was actually trying to do. Mm. Um, and that's our job is to interpret, not to change, to interpret. Yeah, I, I think. The word innovation has become a bit hoard yeah. lately. You know, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, you know, somebody returning to the theatre is innovation. <laughs> you know, or going to the theatre is innovation. Yeah. It's, it's a very yeah, bizarre word. To innovate something you know, does not necessarily mean to change it.
0: Yeah, I don't like that word. Like, I remember the government. I think yeah, the thing when Turnbull was nearly elected, they had, like this massive campaign about innovation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The age of innovation yeah. or some, some, some slogan. But I think, yeah, you can't innovate anything, I think. The, the wheel's already been invented.
1: I think what you can do is explore.
0: I, mean, I think that's a thing. Yeah, look, I,
1: I think true innovation comes from, from knowing your history. In, in, in theatre terms, um, especially with, with sort of emerging artists who want to innovate a piece, it's like make sure you know the history of the piece and make sure you get to know the piece as it is. Before you try to innovate it, you know, or or, or or muck around with the text, you know. I mean, there's, yeah, there's a lot of theatre that you see, um, especially fringe time, where they're just fucking around with the script and they don't know it well enough and it's, it's history and they don't know the basics of it well enough to, to, to achieve it. You know, which is the same because they're not untalented people. They're just rushing. It's like a good cake. It takes time. Food analogies. They're weird. I don't cook that much. <laughs> <laughs> I used to cook a lot. I don't anymore. Um, yeah, yeah, but it, it, it takes time to, to to make something good.
0: To bring to go back to India, like, how did you get involved with the Peas and Carrot Theatre Company?
1: Okay, so a, it's so the A, is the the worst name of a theatre company in the world, I think. And I, I joke to Kyla about this a lot. You know, <laughs> who, who's the artistic director? And we, it's it's a very open joke that one. I first went to India um, in two thousand nine when I was AD of Urban Myth, and we took a, our production of the Pirate Ship, which is a children's play based on the Gillian Rubinstein children's book, The Pirate Ship*, And we had a really successful season here. I met these Indians in Adelaide. They came to see a production of ours of 1984. And it was a school's performance, and I sort of wondered who they were. And they said, oh, they were on tour with... It was a massive production of Midsummer Night's Dream from India that toured back in 2008. And they said, oh, look, by the way, do you know anyone who would want to bring a show to a youth theatre festival in India? And I sort of immediately put my hand up. And then 12 months later, we were in India, and I took seven young people, so they were all 18-plus. So they were just pre-trained. I mean, Urban Myth mainly worked um, with 5- to 27-year-olds, but the the bulk of the young people that I worked with were just those pre-trained people, and then then we got them into the colleges. Um, So I took this mob with us. Um, We went for a month, and I was running workshops there as well uh, with local young people, and Kyla was part of the workshop group. We became very, very good friends very quickly. She's an incredibly talented young woman, extraordinarily talented. We remained friends. Uh, I ended up sponsoring her to come to Adelaide, for the Adelaide Fringe, just so she could see a shitload of of theatre. While she was here, I worked with her on her audition pieces for the um, Lee Strasberg two year program in New York, which she got into and graduated from a couple of years ago. And then she went straight back to Mumbai and opened the Peace and Carrot Theatre Company. So I had been mentoring her, since 2009, now I would certainly regard myself as her peer mentor as opposed yeah. to a uh, mentor, mentor And I'm officially a creative director of Peas and Carrots. She's the AD. The whole goal of Peas and Carrots is to, to bring the world of theatre into India, so it's not just about doing Indian text. It's certainly not about changing English text to suit Indian audiences. That's Yeah, so that's the main goal of that company. And, yet, yeah, it's still chuffing along... Uh, we've just had a play accepted uh, into the Tata International Literature Festival, so that'll be at the end of this year. And I've got permission from from three fantastic playwrights to do their work in India, um, Australian playwrights, which is wonderful. So I'm looking to do a production of uh, When the Rain Stops Falling, mm-hmm. Andrew Burbell, Sheila Duncan's A Solitary Choice, which is a beautiful one-woman show, and uh, it's Monkey Bar Theatre Company's adaptation of Tim Winton's The Bugger Lugs Bum Thief. Oh. So three great... Australian writers, um, whose work is going to be launched onto India which is oh. pretty exciting to be part yeah. of that it's all down to money basically we need to get the money to be able to do mm. it so yeah Bug Lugs is up first uh, for the Tata then I'm doing a solitary choice and when the rain stops falling needs probably the biggest budget um, so that'll be a couple of years I think but my plan is to be living in India by the end of this year I'd like to be living there for 5-6 years which would be great I'm finding it very difficult as a mid-career artist in Australia just to get work. And because I'm... I mean, I've worked solidly for 30 years, but I'm not um, famed. So it's very difficult to... Yeah, I'm finding it very, very difficult to get work here. Which is... I mean, God, I'm, I'm certainly not Robinson Crusoe in that. Yeah. There's a lot of very, very talented, much more talented than me, people that are finding it hard to get work. It's um, the, the frustration for me is I know that in India I'm working... Constantly, I could work 24-7. Um, so it's very frustrating being stuck in Australia at the moment when I know I could be working there. It's also, there's a little tinge of sadness in that, that I need to go offshore yeah. to work. So, yeah. Unless I was prepared to work for free, <laughs> <laughs> which I don't no. want to do. You know? no. And, I mean, my, my one of my talents is working with young artists and emerging artists, and it's, it's as you know, it's very hard to get a workshop program up. And yeah. Most people, I think, these days do a workshop if they think there's a job coming out of it, if they're actually going to be exposed to someone who can employ them. The interesting thing is, you know, I'm a director, of course I could employ you. Yeah. you know, and there's a lot of directors who I think are, are wonderful, wonderful teachers and, act- and actors as well who, who don't get their workshops full because they're, they're not um, handing out a job at the end of the workshop. Mind you, that's happening in India as well. There, mm. There's a sense of, oh, so, you know, am I going to get a job out of doing this workshop? Know, with you, And it's like, well, maybe you know, if I'm looking for someone like you, <laughs> possibly. You know, so it's a, I think it's a global thing. I think fame has become almost uh, too tangible. Yeah. You know, I, I think, yeah, I think the expectation of, of a gig is, is, has expanded to ridiculous and ludicrous proportions. And it's interesting because there's less companies to work for Which is probably why it's happened. So everyone's fighting so hard just to be recognised as as an artist and to to try to get the gig. You know, I mean, actors, you know, God, if they get one play a year, it's kind of a good year. (laughs) Yeah. Which is, you know, if they get one main house, you know, play a year, then it's kind of a good year. It's like, really? Wow. God, that's that's frightening. It's frightening. And as a 53-year-old director, I don't want to do that kind of struggle. I want to be working full-time.
2: Yeah.
1: I want to go to work five days a week and make art. If I was independently wealthy, that's what I'd be doing. You know, but I'm not. <laughs> so, yeah, So it's, it's very, very frustrating. In a way, I wish India never happened, because now I know it exists and I, I just want to be there. Yeah. You know, so, yeah, that, that's kind of tough. Like I said earlier on, it, it's weird being back in Perth. Mm. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't feel like home. I wish it did, because uh, I've got family here and, yeah. and such. Uh, but I, I, I can't... With, with how much I I, I am a workaholic, I, I can't see myself being able to stay here to live because there's not a lot to do, mm. yeah. And I like to do much more. You know, I mean, I was very very blessed and fortunate and and um, to to have Urban Myth for ten years as an ad, and and I got spoiled and used to that, you know. And um, I want more of that. I like sixteen hours a day. You know. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, not necessarily. But yeah, yeah. I mean, it, that idea of working really really hard as your full-time job not necessarily just as a teacher I mean it's interesting that one because twas a day when you know there was that awful saying of um, those that can do those that can't teach
2: yeah.
1: now it's it's those that can teach survive <laughs> yes yeah absolutely one of my biggest absolutely. biggest um, words of advice to, to most young actors now in training is learn how to teach because that's going to pay your rent theatre's not <laughs> you know? okay. Well the, the, the continuation of, of theatre work Or film work is not going to pay you rent it might do for a few weeks but, but learn how to teach
0: That is so so true And I have to add this So the the previous chapter of the Perthian Chronicles uh, We had a Bethany Bracegirdle uh-huh. And her partner uh, Dan Who um, studied at I believe it was UWA or Curtin like Engineering you see But he couldn't get any work in engineering So he's gone back studying teaching Yeah and it's, like, and it's so like and I've got another artist uh, Kat, she's studying teaching yeah and it's yep. just it's just like everyone's going back to just study teaching yeah. and hopefully getting a you know teaching job
1: I wish I wish I'd um, been a little bit well, not a little bit clever I wish I'd known then what I know now I would have got another degree of some kind mm. so I could teach because back then Whopper was just a diploma course as well mm-hmm. so none of us that studied at Whopper at that time got a degree out of it we got a diploma um, which means diddly-squat these days. you know. I mean, even in the arts, the expectation of having a PhD oh, yeah. know, is, is extraordinary. I mean, there's, there's jobs that have been given to, to people with PhDs which have overlooked people with a wealth more experience. Yeah. A friend of mine was teaching at one of the universities, um, acting, mm. and he said that he was told he has to reapply for his job. But also, if he did reapply for his job he would have to commit to doing his PhD to hold the position uh, now this is a man with 45 years experience 40, 45 right. beautiful teacher extraordinary teacher great yeah. director yeah so somebody with a PhD is going to get his job and uh, I'm, I'm not dissing the whole idea of, of academia um, oh, and such yeah. but it, it's, it has no place to govern the arts nothing really should govern anything mm. <laughs> in that sense but but the fact that academia is now governing our industry I think is frightening because, again, it becomes not, not just elite for audiences, but it, it's elite within our industry. Of that, The highly educated, which is generally the middle-class white people, are, will, will get the, the artistic jobs and not just talent. I mean, if I'd had to pay for education when I studied, there's no way I'd be an actor. I'm a Gossi boy. I grew up in Gosnells. Fortunately, education didn't cost back then, so that's why my family said, yeah, OK, you can try to be an actor. Otherwise, I mean, if, if there was fees involved, you know, the big fees that are, there are now, I mean, I, I probably would have done what my father wanted, which was to become, you know, a welder, a fitter and turner. Actually, no, I wouldn't have. I, I ran away from home at 16. There's the way I was <laughs> going to do that. You know? <laughs> a young 16-year-old gay boy, you know, stuck in Gosnells was not, not a good look. <laughs> so I, I moved back to the city very, very young. But, yeah, you know what I'm saying, though. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it is that horrible thing that... It's becoming more elite, where the wealthy, middle class, white kids can become artists, which is really sad. It
0: is, and I'm looking at the time, mm. and we have ran out of time. But before I, we've spoken for an hour, an hour and a bit. Oh my god, that's that really. I feel funny. like that was the introduction. <laughs> <laughs> but um, to sign off, yeah, I'm not sure if you. I think talking to you uh, the other week. So basically the whole premise of this podcast is to revisit its authors, the guests, uh, in 10 years time. Yeah. In the year 2027. That's fantastic. So I'm really looking forward to that and hopefully it'll be proper and I'll have a bit more equipment
1: and, and health. Oh no, 63. Oh, 10, 10 years, years time. 10, <laughs> 20 20 years no, done. no, not 63, there you go. That's yeah. pretty exciting. That'd be interesting. Hopefully I'll, I'll have my... The aim is a guest house in Goa yeah in that's what I want to do
0: well the question was I want to ask you so Glenn in the year 2027 as we meet again yeah what would you like to plug promote and like as a,
1: far as my my, my job uh, yeah what would you like to put like a play a an product. autobiography oh or god by 2027 I think I would like to be plugging my um, three year professional training course based in Goa yeah Ten years, yeah, because we'll be hitting its stride by then. Because that's what we started work on it already. Um, for the last two years, we've been developing the curriculum. All so, right. Yeah. So that, that's so we'll we'll start with a um a ten week course, mm-hmm. course, which will go into a six month course, which will go into a one year course, two year course, then then establish the three year course within five years.
0: Oh wow! So it's like a tertiary
1: tertiary idea. Yeah. End, so the end goal would be tertiary. Yeah. So oh, hopefully wow. it'll be you know um, go as whopper and Goa in particular because it's so cheap for the students to live yeah. it's incredible and they're hidden I, I like the idea of um, one of the benefits of studying at WAPA I thought was we could make so many more mistakes here because we weren't seen by the, the mm. major industry so we could stuff up as much much braver I think than, than in, in NIDA or BCA mainly NIDA yeah because they've been watched from the first year I know NIDA students their agents basically chose them from first year saying yep yeah, we're going to grab that one
0: that's scary. Yeah,
1: but here we, we could actually oh, be braver. and. That's and, really scary. I know, I know. But there's also yeah. massive pluses of oh, having yeah. the industry there as well. Well, Glenn, thank you. It's been a pleasure. My pleasure. I wish it was a two-hour gig. <laughs> <laughs> I could easily talk more. I, um, I, I, I
0: would. It would be a two-hour gig, but it's like how I upload this on um, uh, SoundCloud and what have you and the mm. internet and, yeah. So are be, you getting a good audience? Yes and no. Yep. Oh, it's, it's growing? Yes, yes. it's really weird. like, the first episode um, I did with my mate, or oh, who graduated with me, Sam Stopforth, and he right. had a band, Boykey, and he had the most listeners. Ah. And then it went down. Oh, well, not Yeah, well, like, he had about, like, I think 80, 80 listens. Yep. And then it dropped the next episode, um, which was quite sad, with Elise. It was, that, that, that was a great episode, really... It was really, it was a great conversation. We talked about a lot of new ideas. Nice. But that got like 20, and then it stayed in the 20s, and then it's gone up to 30s. And with this, hopefully it'll crack a (laughs) hundred.
1: Well, make sure I've got
0: the links and stuff, because I'll I'll promote it. Oh, wonderful. Well, thank you, Glenn. Oh, pleasure. Goodbye. Bye-bye.